You're listening to Motherhood Unstressed, the podcast that talks all about the realities of being a mom in today's world, but also gives you practical takeaways for making the ride as fun and stress-free as possible. The way we live life is an art. I'm here to remind you of the power you already have to create a truly beautiful life. This episode is sponsored by Organifi. Organifi offers completely organic, vegan, non-GMO superfood blends that makes it incredibly easy to incorporate superfoods into your diet. Um, It's got things like chlorella and spirulina, um, turmeric, ginger, you know, they have mushroom blends, just an amazing array of products uh, to help you boost your immune system and incorporate true nutrition into your diet while also being insanely easy. So go to AganifyShop.com and use the code LizC15 for an extra 15% off your purchase. This episode is also sponsored by Sunday Scaries. They are the CBD gummies. Uh, They are non-psychoactive. They do not contain any THC, but they're awesome for stress relief, pain relief. If you feel like you need to uh, have a little help taking the edge off, these are amazing, and there's no side effects. You're not going to feel out of sorts at all by taking these. You're just going to feel the benefits. Um, Check them out at 4FORSundayScaries.com and use the code UNSTRESSED for 10% off your purchase. Guys, this episode I just did with Dr. Renee Moudre is insane. It is filled with so many helpful nuggets for parenting boys and girls, but this episode is going to be all about the boy and raising a boy that is emotionally healthy and stable and grows into a man that thrives in the world instead of suppresses emotion and doesn't know how to express it or relate to other people and is just, you know, depressed and acting out and and that can result in addiction or it can result in depression. I mean, a myriad of things. So we get deep into the psychology of boys and the emotionality and it turns out that boys and girls have the same levels of emotion it's just in our society and our culture where we're taught to suppress it and downplay it and say things like man up and oh he's just being a boy I mean that's completely backwards and so we talk about you know practical things that parents can do um, to increase you know awareness around this issue and be better parents and let their boys have that internal emotional landscape that is their birthright and they should um and you know when things arise you know our inner child is going to get triggered and i think you know we get into that how that actually causes a lot of the trouble in raising boys especially because you know when boys get emotional and they cry something inside of us especially fathers says you know well, I can relate to that. And I was told not to express that. So I'm going to shut that down too. And the cycle just perpetuates. And I don't want to get too much into what we talk about because it is amazing. But let me just say, you know, if you're a parent of a girl or especially a boy, you're going to want to listen to this because it's so enlightening. And I learned so much and I know you will too. So enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you for being here today. Um, I have a phenomenal guest and what we're going to talk about, I think, is so under-discussed. It's so important um, for whether you're a mom or a dad or whether you're going to have kids one day. I think it's crucial that we have this conversation. Um, and so I'm so excited to share this with Dr. Renee Moudre. She is a doctor of educational psychology. She's a radio show host. She's a transformational coach. And she's the founder of... Um, the Transcendent Heart Life Coaching Program, which uses research-based strategies that are proven to have to help an individual, you know, progress through a major life transition. So, thank you for being here. I'm so excited to uh, get into this with you today. Thank you, thank you for having me. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a huge topic, um, and it's about the preserving the emotionality of our boys, and you know. <sighs> You, you hate to get into this conversation with another parent because everybody's parenting styles are different and everybody has, you know, different childhoods and, and what, you know, what brought them to that place and how they parent in their lives. Um, but before we even get into all of that, because it's such a juicy topic, why don't you start by giving us a little bit about your background and how you got into this world? 
Oh, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I'm the divine mother of two amazing kids. So I have a seven and an eight-year-old. So that kind of lets you know that it's like crazy when they're that close right, in birth. But uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. My daughter's actually going to be nine. She always reminds me, she says, Mommy, please don't make it sound like we're only a year apart because <laughs> they're closer to, you know, 20 months, but God forbid. So yeah, so divine mother of two. I've been married now for the 17 years this year. Mm-hmm. And um, as you said, I have a PhD in educational psychology. I have been a, an associate professor at the University of Akron. I'm now in my 14th year and um, was a high school teacher before that. So I have been in the educational system for 23 years now um, and have loved every minute of it. But I found after I had my daughter, I was yearning for something more. You know, I really was yearning for how to bridge what I knew from an empirical perspective as a researcher, as an academic. Um, And yet I still yearned for this spiritual connection to people. And, you know, I saw it in my children. And I saw that the more that I tried to be really pragmatic with, you know, behavioral plans or parenting strategies and steps, that something was just not happening. Something was missing. And I had studied emotional regulation is what my specialization is and the intersection of frontal lobe development. And I started to put two and two together that I was doing the scientific work, but I wasn't doing the emotional work and Mm -hmm. particularly with my son. And so he and I were at odds chronically, constantly. It felt like a battle. And I just couldn't understand why, why it wasn't working. And so I really devoted myself at that time to really hone in, go in and do more research into the very specific needs of boys, because there are some brain differences, um, but also that um, boys were often not allowed to be emotional. And why was that? And did I have a mindset that was perpetuating that, even though I knew different? And what would I do about it? So, you know, all that, the educational career, the parenting intersected and created this really amazing moment for me that why I became a transformational coach was I needed to transform to transform myself as a parent first mm-hmm. and foremost. And now I do a lot of that work with, with my clients. Well, that's so amazing because it really was like your career and then your role as a mother that really puts you in the perfect position to really explore this topic, yeah. you know, from a researcher standpoint, you know, why is it that, you know, boys are not able to express and emote and, and why, you know, and, and it's perfect that you had a daughter as well, because then you can really see how you were treating one perhaps versus the other. Um, now I'm, you know, everyone knows I'm a mom of two boys and, you know, there are three and six as of, you know, the 28th this month. Um, and so it's, I haven't known anything different, you know, like I grew up with, you know, two other sisters and a brother, but like in my household, we were raised kind of all like boys in a way, you know, like my parents were very encouraging to, for us to be, you know, tough. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of girly things and not a lot of Barbie dolls. We played sports and we were just, you know, a family of Marines essentially. So, um, so for me, it's, it's just such an interesting topic because it's like, well, I want to do the best job I can to raise good men. And, and I don't want to, suppress anything either because of what culture says or what society says. And so I'm just, I'm so fascinated and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here because it's, it's an expert in this, you know, you work in the field of psychology and education. So um, really it's, it's, it's amazing that you're here. And I really want to dive into what we can do to prevent damaging our kids. Like, I feel like we're always going to do some kind of damage, but it's, it's, it's better, you know, the more awareness and education we bring into it, the better we can try to do for our children. So, Absolutely. so um, you know, you kind of talked about how your role as a researcher and a mom has led to this, really this life's work for you. Um, what kind of impact has it had on, on where you're going with this study? Oh, it's profound. And, and I'll say that it started actually in a really sort of informal social atmosphere. I have a private Facebook group that um, I have. And it it actually is really significantly split, almost like 60-40 female male. And I'm surprised to have that many male followers, right? And and something that's very emotional and those kinds of things. And uh, typically in these coaching fields, we tend to be predominantly female clients, right? And, And things of that nature. But my group was really interesting. It was very much even. And I would notice that the men wouldn't participate 
in some of the lives that were about certain topics or respond to certain posts. And so as my eye as a researcher, of course, I went into those little analytical boxes, right, that we get about who's participating and what's going on. And I realized that those things that were very pragmatic, that were very logical, that were about, you know, um, hustling and empowering and, you know, all that machismo kind of thing, the men were participating, but the women were not. And so it was interesting, again, that there were such traditional gender lines, even in social media in that way. And I wanted to break that. So I went on, I did a live, had my son with me, and I said, men, I need you. I need you. I need your voices. I need to understand here are the things I've seen, and I know there's a reason for it. And so if any men are interested in signing up for a private um, sort of a little small group discussion, things like that. It'll all be confidential within your own group. And many of them did. They just came flooding in. And, wow. you know, I would pose a few prompts here or there, you know, tell me, um, you know, if you had been able to do something, had heard something different as a boy, what would you have wished that to have been? Or what was, uh, you know, how do you come to determine and understand what manning up means? You know, those kinds of things. And the conversation was intense because even amidst the men, there was a spectrum, right? And so some of them had your very traditional male authoritarian type parenting figures, you know, a one I'm using his words was suck it up buttercup, you know, let's just move on mm -hmm. um, where other had more, doting fathers and were much more emotional in some ways to them, but then they would have a narcissistic mother. Um, it was, it was so amazing. Wow. The, and this again was just this really informal, let's have a conversation that then turned into an actual formal study for me. Wow. So the men do have a spectrum, right? There is a spectrum of emotionality and it really does hover back to how they were parented, the caregiver effect as we call it. Um, but it also you know, there's other determining factors, right? We can't rule out personality. Um, mm -hmm. Introverts, extroverts, we all process information, have different needs, right, for emotional um, touch in different ways. Or, you know, I'd rather have emotional verbally, not physically. There's all these different things, right, that I haven't even been able to account for yet and go down that road. But for now, it really, what I found out to be true is that men and women are exactly the same on an emotional landscape as far as needing, desiring, wanting emotional connection. But how they express it, right, is, is completely different. And their expression was connected to cultural norms, social norms, what they believed was acceptable. Mm -hmm. And in many atmospheres, if they were shut down as a child, then they learned that that wasn't that wasn't a valuable aspect to do. Um, and they let it go. They just began suppressing emotionally. And other men who are very emotional, here's an interesting piece. Their female counterparts, if they were in uh, traditional um, different gender relationships, I'd love to do this on same gender relationships next, just to mm -hmm. kind of see if that similarity or difference is there in energy. But for you know um, different gender couples, women often got to a space where they felt that that excessive emotionality was atypical and they didn't like it. Wow. Huge, right? So we're yearning for men to open up, to be emotional, to be huggers, to be, you know, in that space. And when they get there, guess what? The ones who said they wanted it are really uncomfortable with it. And wow. I don't do this research, but I did read that that had something to do with a sort of awakening up of the feminine essence. And in our own space, we become confused about our masculine feminine kind of balance, which I thought was super cool. Right. I want to look that into that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Because it's almost like we're playing these roles in our relationships. And it's like, you know, you're in this box and I'm in this box. And if someone starts creeping over into your box, it's like, well, then where do I stand? You know, who am I? Out of my sandbox. <laughs> right, right. No. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. So, I mean, going back to what you were saying, it's if, if a young boy, if boys and girls are essentially the same, you know, they have the same level of emotions, they want to express it, they need to express it, you know, yeah. for their well-being. And then the boys are just shut down over their lifetime. And I can, you know, thinking back, I, I absolutely resonate with that, watching how, you know, my brother was treated versus us. I mean, it was, it was different. And so what happens to a young boy when he turns into a man? What kind of, what kind of damage has been done or what, you know, yeah. what happens to them? 
Yeah, well, they end up perpetuating the cycle most most often. And and the other piece, though, is this is where when people are experiencing anxiety, depression, that sort of wake up of the soul, you, you know, really crying out that something's not quite right, that bothers them so much, but they don't recognize it as a need to shift to do something different or be something different than what they have been. And so they struggle with that really, really significantly. But I'll tell you that it comes from the parents own emotional trauma wounds, emotional needs. And so I'll give you an example. Um, You know, if we're going to talk about traditional father son relationship and the son is hurt and is crying and immediately that triggers that inner child of that father Mm -hmm. to a moment where his father told him that wasn't acceptable. And that emotional need resonates with him where most people would say, well, wouldn't that wake them up to say, well, I should do this differently because I wanted this. Therefore, yes, that's exactly what they want to do. When they were asked, if you could have done that differently, what would you have done? Of course, I would have hugged my son and just told him it's okay. But they immediately needed to shut down their own emotional trigger because they didn't like how they felt. So their son's emotional reaction triggers their emotional Mm -hmm. experience, which then results in a need to get, just let it go and make it stop because I don't like how I feel. So it almost has nothing to do with the child at that point, right? right? They're just a receptor. And that's the part where we get messed up because mm-hmm. we, I, I am very much a practitioner in what we call the field of narrative psychology. That story and those narratives that get written for us and we start to believe them in our own mind that this is our reality, that I'm not supposed to be expressive even though I feel like I want it, um, or people will reject me if I act a certain way because that's what I was told or I was modeled or I was shared. And I've even had some parents who said, but I didn't do that, but I felt it, I mm-hmm. believed it. And so while I may not have manifested the actions, I didn't you know, um, spank my child or whatever, you know, they might've manifested as, as an emotional traumatizing reaction, they still weren't emotionally open to their child and their child knew it, right? You, you're a mom, you know, our kids know, they know exactly when our emotional realities shift and they don't have to have the cognitive capacity to understand what's happening, but they have the sentient ability, right? The feeling, mm-hmm. the emotional aspect to just know something's not quite right. Oh, absolutely. And I almost think, you know, it is such an awakening experience to become a parent because so many times, you know, things, old, old wounds are being triggered, like almost on a daily basis, because it's, you're kind of forced to not, I wouldn't say relive your childhood, but face it, you know? And so I could definitely see a lot of people wanting to shut it down, you know, just wanting to get through the day without really stopping um, and processing something. And a quick little story, I was driving my two boys to school the other day and, you know, DC, the younger one had a toy that Nash suddenly had to have. And I was like, no, leave him alone. He's your little brother, you know, just be quiet in the back, you know, please let's just get to school. And Nash just broke down. Like he switched and he just yeah. broke down. And I was like, what is going on? And he, he said, you know, he just was crying fussy. You couldn't get a word in. And then I was like, no, talk to me. Like what's happening? And he's, and he said, he's like, you always give DC what he wants. You love him more than, than me. And it was just like, whoa, like I didn't think it was going to go there. And so I just broke it down. I took the time, you know, we were in traffic and I was like, you know, that's absolutely not true. I'm so sorry you feel that way. And we went into it and it took maybe five minutes. And I swear to God, his demeanor after that conversation, he was on cloud nine. I mean, it shifted so dramatically and I could feel it. Like I could feel his emotions in the car. Like he was like, his inner person was like, thank you. Thank you for seeing. Thank you for recognizing that instead of just being like, shut the hell up. You know, we're in, you know, be quiet. I got to get us to school. Like it was just it was like a buttercup, right? <laughs> exactly. The exactly. Yeah. Which is, I think is so, I mean, I don't, I don't judge anybody who's in that situation and is, you know, their kids are driving them crazy. Like I know how hard it is, but it's, if you go that other route and explore and let them express it, 
it's a game changer. Yeah. You know, and I was going to say two things that you make me think of when you said your example there was one, this is definitely not only a male issue. There are many girls who are raised in similar conditions and grow up to be same way, you know, suppressing emotions, things of that nature. And, you know, I sort of got yelled at one time was like, why aren't you talking about the girls? And I said, it was a conscious choice for me that it was going to be really difficult to examine both genders at the exact same time, right? To be able to identify those individual variables that you could say maybe were from an explanation perspective. But I, it was a personal choice for me because there are many people out there. I mean, we have schools dedicated to women's study and we don't have you know, boy gender studies, right, because of the feminist movement that we fought so hard against because we felt that everything was male dominated anyway. Mm -hmm. And so now we're at that crossroad where Carol Gilligan has even shouted out at the top of her lungs many times that we have gone the other way. And now we have a generation, right? We're in generation Z, right? We call them the linked generation, right? Because they're linked into technology more so than the millennials and Z because again, they're usually excess kids, right? Kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's that kind of idea, but that they have such a whole new host of emotional needs because of that technological connection, brain differences, you know, those kinds of things that there are some things that are unique to boys. And I really wanted to, to try to find those. So it's not unique to girls. Uh, you know, it's not just a sole issue for boys. Yeah. It definitely is, is also for girls. But the other thing is there are some brain differences. And the one thing we know for sure is the frontal lobe, right? Right in the front of our brain that is predominantly responsible for emotion regulation and emotional expression, communication, some aspects of language, that kind of stuff um, is late. It's the last part of the brain to develop of any part of your brain. So overall, even girls as teenagers are still budding frontal lobe development and boys are far later. And mm -hmm. so it's the last part. It usually peaks between 21 and 24. So my college students are still bursting in that aspect of their brain. Think about how much we didn't know about that years ago. Yeah. And so now we have a whole new category that we call emerging adult, which is 17 to about 25 now. Young adulthood doesn't even start till 25. Because yeah. we know that they're still developing. They're still, they're not childlike. I never say that because I love my millennials. I do. I, I think they're just a an awesome generation of human beings. Um, so you're not going to hear me criticize them ever, but because they showed us these things that we didn't see before, we recognize that they are still not adults to that capacity. And so if you, if your frontal lobe is lacking, your emotion regulation is going to be not at the top of its game either. And so mm -hmm. a five-year-old boy, someone comes to me complaining as this is biting, tell me something I'm not surprised about. Um, you know, it, it's an outlet for emotional release. And, and if you're lacking frontal lobe, you don't come to an understanding that maybe society doesn't accept biting as a regular practice, right? right? Kicking, calling names, saying the word, I hate you, you know, or the words, I hate you. Again, very, very normal, very understandable. And I've got to like reassure a lot of parents listening to this because it's like, you know, you worry that your child is different or yeah. lacking or, but really it's just, it's run of the mill, you know, they need to get something out and they, they're not, their brain simply isn't developed enough yet. Yeah. And we have to understand that the developmental trends are that it's a spectrum there. Mm -hmm. Everybody is everywhere. And then some, I'm not surprised if your kid moves along that spectrum quite a bit, you know, might even seem like they've advanced in some things and then regresses at some time. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely normal. There's just certain key identifiers we would want to look at for, you know, um, autism or things like that, that would be more significant. But for most, when, when I get a contact from a parent or, you know, a teacher or something like that, it's just so typical. It's so normal. And I say, what we need to do here, you're not going to like this. What we need to do here is what I say to them is tap into our own emotional reality and say, what is it triggering within us? Wow. Especially teachers. I do workshops on this with teachers in schools. Your students' behaviors are not connected to them necessarily. It's your emotional receptivity and reaction to it that actually creates how that goes, where it goes, and the ramifications of the discipline. Wow. I don't remember having classroom problems as a teacher. I really didn't have a ton, but I'm far more accepting of normal emotional reaction and outburst isn't necessarily a disciplinary problem. It's an emotional expression. 
Mm. And for a child, they, they don't understand societal expectations. And the more we allow them to express it first and then hone them back in on what society will probably smack back about later on right. in life, and you might get arrested if you do this <laughs> kind of thing, let's just give them that space first, right? That's what that. we have to do. And that's why I love Montessori education, because it's one of those realms where they allow that emotional expression. They kind of you know turn a blind eye to a lot of things that other schools just wouldn't, mm-hmm. wouldn't handle. Um, and then those kids end up being pretty much superior aspects of the educational system. It's not a shock. It's not a shock. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. So in your opinion, I mean, why do you think it is so taboo in Western culture? Or really, I mean, I would even go as far as it, in the world for men to emote and show, you know, emotion, cry and, you know, get, get real with, with them, with those around them. Well, there's cultural, right? There's definitely cultural norms. And and we're such a conglomeration of a lot of cultures as an American culture, Western culture. And so there's just these misinterpretations of acceptance. Um, You know, in some cultures, um, you know, even a man being able to say what he feels is completely considered, you know, rude, right? And an Mm. an insult to question the authoritarian figure of of the parent. And so we have that. Um, But then also it's interesting because when you look at Western Eastern culture, there are many cultures in Eastern culture in which children are actually isolated really young to which a lot of people don't like. I'm not saying I'm a proponent of that. I'm just saying what happens over there. Um, And they actually isolate them very young for the purpose of them coming into tune with their emotional, spiritual reality and then socializing. So we kind of do it backwards here, right? We do it a little bit different where we're so about the socialization and then we'll focus on the individual needs Mm -hmm. if they arise. And so that's a difference culturally too. But I think also the, the mental health industry, really has made it hard to say the word emotional and not be like, well, where do I put you in the DSM? Where, where do you fit in this box or this category? If I say I'm emotional in Western culture, people are like, are you menopausal? Is something wrong? Are you okay? Versus in Eastern culture, welcome to the, to the group. We're all emotional. <laughs> we all have positive, negative, and neutral emotions, and we all move along a spectrum. Think about when you wake up, how do you feel? Every day is different for me. <laughs> Some days I'm like, oh, this is horrible. <laughs> moving. And then other days I'm like, woo, today's fantastic. So even there as an adult, I have a spectrum. Children have a spectrum. They mm-hmm. just don't have the communication capacity in which to express the language yet of emotions. And then we've got individuals with their own emotional filter determining whether they want to let those emotions in or not. So that's, that in itself is so powerful. Like going back to how you talked about, you know, the emotion, the emotional state of the teachers in the classroom affecting, you know, how many behavioral outbursts there would ha- what they would be. And I even think, you know, that goes, it's the same for parents, you know, where the parent is in, in with their level of emotions and what they can process and deal with, like that's going to affect how the child, you know, is able to exist in their world, in their home. Um, that's just, it's fascinating. And at the same time, it's so fascinating to me, but it's also really scary because it it's like, God, these are such important, crucial years. And if I'm having a bad day, if I don't want to hear it, like I could potentially, you know, make my child a certain way for the rest of his life, affecting every other relationship that he's in. Like that's a, a hell of a lot of pressure. Yeah, it's a huge burden, isn't it? Yeah, and and especially I'm not only mother, but I'm also educational psychologist. So it's like at times I'm my own worst critic because Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, should I have said that? Should I have done that? And we can't live like that either, right? And so, you know, there is an essence of, you know, there has to be an organic experience to parenting, as you know. But when I say this, that when you are in a sense of awareness, that you can just be aware that you are perfectly imperfect as a parent, that you are going to have emotional highs, lows, and all that in between. But guess what you get to do? You get to have a conversation like you did, right? And you get to say, you know what, mommy probably shouldn't have said that. Or when mommy reacted like that to that person on the phone, it was because I felt this. So you're not having to act differently. We're just Mm -hmm. asking you to be real about your emotions, to be authentic about your emotions, because genetically your children are you. So if you're somewhat a little bit easier to go to that side of anger or reaction, your child is too. So it's better that they see it happening and you being able to communicate about why it happens and what they can do 
to better alleviate those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's, it, you know, when you start getting into pretending to be what you're not, that's not healthy for your child either. So we definitely tell people this is not a discussion about you are not allowed to be emotional. My number one pillar of my coaching program is emotional authenticity, but that doesn't give you permission, you know, to be a jerk. It just yes. doesn't. It doesn't give you permission to abuse someone because you're emotionally not where you should be um, or wish to be. You have a responsibility to your emotions and that's what I try to get people to understand. And then that'll trickle into the kids. Yeah. You're emotionally happy and healthy and balancing and noticing when you're out of alignment and going back into alignment. Isn't it amazing that everybody else around you somehow seems to be doing it too? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something that I promote so much. Um, and it's all about, you know, balancing yourself, making yourself happy through what you're doing with your self-care and with, with your fitness, with nutrition, all of that. And it does, it emanates out of you. And I mean, I know firsthand in my house, if I'm feeling a little crazy and angry and like too much is on me, everyone else in the house is going to be miserable. Right. Yeah. I don't even like directly interact with them. It's like this energy that just permeates out. I mean, it's wild. Yeah. Um, but I want to go towards uh, a little different avenue. Um, you, you're a blogger as well. You put a lot of awesome stuff out there on your site, which we'll have in the show notes. Um, but you blogged about Justin Baldoni's TED Talk. Um, and for those of you who haven't you know, seen it yet, absolutely go check it out. Um, and it's, he discusses why he's done trying to be man enough. Um, and you, you blogged about that particular Ted talk and, you know, how much it impacted you. So what were the biggest takeaways that you got from that talk? Oh, he's such a phenomenal human being, isn't he? It's like, you know, and yeah, and he's, and he's very attractive on top of all of this. It was like, hello, my cord, hello, I'll go watch this for, you know, 25 minutes, but no, it was, won't regret it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And of course he's done modeling and acting and all that kind of stuff. So he said that the biggest thing for him was that he moves in and out, ebbs and flows out of these personas, these other personalities, which somehow he's actually been sort of, you know, what's the word we use in acting where they kind of get stuck in that same type of method acting. Yeah. And, and, you know, not realizing he's always a shirtless machismo, narcissistic, serial dater guy. And then he came to this realization in his own life that that was nothing about who he was. Mm -hmm. And so fortunately he was able to step out of that acting role. But for many people who grow up believing those narratives about this is what masculinity is this is what being a man is being man enough as he says in his video was a certain way Mm -hmm. and yet there were so that was really huge was the vulnerability of man was showing in resisting his own masculinity his own ego need at that moment was so powerful for me right I I said we need more of this we need more of this and then the other part which really was huge, was talking about when men are emotional, it's usually in those spaces that they feel safe. And so look at athletic teams' experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they show intense emotions. Um, or if they are the one who are responsible for the loss, let's say, you know, accidentally hit the ball into the goal or whatever might have happened, the shame and, and the, you know, the sadness that they feel. And so they're there are these little vacuums, these little pockets of experiences in which they are emotional. And when other men are like that and accept that as truth, then they have permission to do it. Absolutely. So that was huge. It was huge. I I watched that thing a lot. I'll go back and just watch it and just be like, I learned something new every time I go back to it. Well, and I think it's so important too, like he's giving this amazing message, this permission to men to be emotional, to be authentic, you know, in their emotions. And he's in a position of like male power in a way, you know, he, he's athletic looking, he's attractive, you know, he's successful. So for someone from that platform to do it, I think it carries even more weight, you know, maybe it shouldn't, but it's the reality of the situation. Very true. Yeah. And I love also, this is the last point out of there that I think is huge is he, he comes down and starts to talk to women and he says, we need you. Hmm. We need you. We need you to be patient with us because we're going to screw up. We're not going to be perfect. We hear you. We, we are wanting to get in touch with what you need from us. But when we do go there, like we talked about earlier in here, 
don't reject us when we go there. Don't say we're being feminine or we're not manning up because you said this was what you wanted. And we also want this. And so we have to create a new human definition. He says, let's just raise kids to be good human beings. Compassion, emotion, love, human, not male, not female, just human. And that was like, yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But like going, going back to that, you know, you talk about, you know, the father teaching the son to man up, you know, be this way. But what about the mother? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Is yeah. that even a worse thing? You know, if a mother resents any kind of emotion in her son and treats him poorly because of it. I mean, I would think that might even cut even deeper. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought this up. This is relatively new for me. I actually did a three-part video series on YouTube um, about narcissism. And that's where this came out of. And are all mothers on the cluster B narcissistic side? No, of course not. But, but those stuff that I examined, they were. And so uh, when those of us, and I have the personal experience, who have narcissistic mothers. Um, they are socially created right? They, narcissists are created out of two dimensions. One, you're either not good enough and you're made to feel shame and lack of love for self and things like that, or you're grandiose, right? You're everything. You can't, nothing you ever did was wrong. We love, you know, everything about you is magical, right? So we've got the two dimensions of narcissism. Mm -hmm. People often forget that other side. They only think of the grandiose, you know, overt people, but then the covert people, can go into two domains. They can become narcissists themselves or they can become codependent, right? Mm -hmm. And so when the mother rejects the emotional reality of the son, they're going to go one of two ways. They're going to be codependent, needing to be validated, probably seeking out um, either sexual experiences or like, you know, um, I had a wonderful young man on my radio show the other day, might go into drug abuse, might go into substance Mm -hmm. abuse, needing to seek something to fill that emotional void. Or, you know, if they don't go into addiction, they might go into extreme isolation. Who knows? But we definitely see, you know, the impact of mom as well. And in my family, I, because I had a narcissistic mother with a very caregiving father, I still at least had that which to pull from in my bank. But my primary reaction to things are to stop the emotion because my mother didn't like emotion. You know, let's, let's just never apologize, never stopped anything, you know, just let it go. And Mm -hmm. so that was hard for me to tackle that piece of my own personality. That was my greatest journey as a mom to come into touch with that, really heal that part of me um, and allow that to just be a constant reminder of what I don't want for my kids. And so Mm -hmm. it's easy for me. My husband was more the caregiver in the early years. And when I did the work, I became far better with my kids. And now I had a moment, you know, we were in church the other day. And it was my husband, my son, then, then me and my daughter. And both of my children were both laying on my shoulders. And mm-hmm. it was like, I knew that even though I struggled in the earlier stages, that it was okay. It was okay. We got this now. So. Oh, wow. Good for you. I mean, to do the work. I mean, it's gut-wrenchingly hard, you know, I'm sure. It and is. So that's, to have that result is just awesome. I love it. And I hope people listening can see that nothing is stagnant. You know, there's always opportunity for growth and change. You know, you're never done until you're done. I mean, yeah. really. And the amount of shame we carry around for our lived experiences as children, ourselves, as parents, right? What happened to us? Um, I just did a big live on this on Instagram today. It's, it's so hard to un ravel that and let some of that just be right Mm -hmm. we can't unwrite it it's our chapters it's part of our story but we still have chapters coming and we can still rewrite those and be better parents be better human beings teach our children how to be in a comfort space of being an emotional person and the benefit of it right the benefit that it has I love that I love that that's really powerful Um, But going back, you know, to our main topic, um, why do you think that nurturing the emotionality in boys and their ability and their, you know, their toolkit to, you know, making that accessible, why is that so important? Because it's unfair, really. You're asking someone to be half of what we're asking girls to be, right? Or allowing them to be in a way. And so why is it that boys need to be strong and capable and provide and, you know, problem solvers and singular task, 
movie makers, because you know men can't multitask very well. You know, why, why are they only allowed to be on that side of the spectrum? But we as girls, we're supposed to be all that. And we're also given permission to be emotional because way back in history, we were the ones who predominantly raised the children. But that is so mm-hmm. shifted, right? That's so shifted. There are so many stay-at-home fathers. There are so many shared parenting roles, whether still married or not, that people are rock stars as parents today and doing great jobs. But we haven't caught up to the practice because we often don't know how as parents ourselves to just teach children how to identify emotions, for example. Well, that you know, I'm, I'm really upset. You can say to your child, well, obviously you're really mad right now. I see that you are mad. They might not be able to use that word, right? Mm-hmm. But they're learning. This is what mad looks like. This is what sad looks like. And so they can be more appropriate in their emotions, that kind of stuff. But we don't do that for boys, but girls, we just, we accept it as truth, right? You're mm-hmm. sad. We talk to them. We use a different language with them. And so boys get half of what we provide girls. And that to me is just not fair. It's not fair. Yeah. So not only do we treat them differently, but they result in being less in a way on the emotional side. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then it affects, like I said, every other relationship that they have in their lives, whether it's for, with a teacher or, you know, a partnership or even a boss. I mean, it just, every, everything, every, life is relationships. And so if you, if you can't relate to other people when, when stuff gets hard, if you know, you're having conflict, I mean, that puts you at such a disadvantage. Yeah. I've had parents ask me too, you know, should I, we don't like to fight in front of our children and we make sure we handle that business, you know, on our own. And I said, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that holistically. Sure. I don't want like huge, long (laughs) shouting matches, you know, all that kind of stuff, name calling, but our children, particularly boys have to learn how to fight healthfully, right. Mm -hmm. To use language, to use skills. Why wouldn't we want them to be around seeing us be healthy problem solvers who love each other and endure I would prefer that. Um, I would have loved to have seen that. My parents didn't fight very much, but they didn't really talk much. And so I didn't learn how to fight. And so the first instance in my own relationship of conflict, I got scared. I I assumed it was like, wow, it's over. Mm. No, it's not done. And so emotionally, again, whether boy or girl, who's a product of that too, emotionally is going to struggle. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're not saving them from real life when you, when you sugarcoat it or hide it. Right. Uh, but like you said, to do healthfully conflict. I mean, we all struggle with that. I know it can get heated, but um, yeah, <laughs> to not use, like I've heard, you know, other people say, you know, you don't use, don't do name calling and don't make it, you know, that way. Like keep it, keep it on topic. Yeah. Use language. You make me mad. Yeah. You know, right now your father is making me very upset. And right now I would like for him to use his words a little bit better with me. <laughs> To tell me what it is that he's feeling. There's nothing wrong with that. It actually is. It works. And so peer pressure, parental pressure to Mm -hmm. step in and say, yes, I was not. I didn't do what I said I should do. And I'm going to go and fix that. Or I'm not very happy either. And we need to reconcile. Okay, let's do it. So I love it. Yeah, I have a really interesting um, relationship coaching program where I do a lot of this work with with couples. And they're usually parents. And it's it's fun to see them. So needed. So needed. I mean, if. I feel like if there's not conflict, you're dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so for parents, moms and dads listening to this, what are some practical things that they can do? They've got a son or multiple sons. Um, what are some practical things that they can do to nurture that emotionality without, you know, cringing too much and feeling like they're betraying everything that they know, um, but they still want to help their sons be awesome men? Yeah, well, first and foremost, I actually, I blogged about this recently, and and tip number one was that you have to allow your child to have an inner landscape. You have to come to the space of recognizing your child is not just a manifestation of external behaviors. Your child has an inner world, and that's sacred. And if we can get to a place as parents where we honor that, we cherish that, we talk about it, right? We talk aloud about emotions with them. That is going to create a reality that I'm allowed to have these emotions that I have. Um, I'm not going to feel shame or guilt or inappropriate about the fact that I feel uncomfortable right now. You know, and just to give an example, my son has a best friend who's a girl and um, 
they love each other so much, but they're together so much that, of course, the conflict arises just like siblings does. And they're both highly sensitive kids. So we've got the complicated factor of emotionality with high sensitivity. That's a whole other conversation, right? And in that, he comes up to me and says, I don't want to be her friend anymore. And I said, well, I see that you're not feeling very happy about something right now. And that you actually look like you're feeling hurt. Talk to me about how you feel about that. Well, she did this and she said this, but then said, I said this. And, you know, and I said, but how do you, do you would you feel bad if she wasn't your friend anymore? Right. Of course I would. Well, then let's talk about that. Cause what if she does, she doesn't want to be your friend anymore. You know, so how would we solve this now to make sure that she still wants to be your friend and you get to talk and that, you know, it was a whole different discussion, right? Because I honored his emotionality. I honored that inner world. And ever since he was, I didn't do a very good job the first couple of years, but ever since he's been three, right, he knows he can come and talk to me about that. My husband is still working on this. Mm -hmm. He grew up in a culture where, you know, again, it was not honored. He's a military veteran. He's got a lot of things that are just there, part of his his story mm-hmm. that he has to, again, recognize his own responsibility in this process. And he's working on it. He's doing some of his own work now. So wow. but that's number one. I would say definitely honor that your child has that emotional landscape to communicate with words, vocabulary of emotions so that your children can pick up these different things. And this is one of the five elements of emotional intelligence, right? Is being emotional awareness, understanding that I am sad. How many of us have emotions that sometimes we're like, I don't know what I'm feeling right now. Mm-hmm. I feel perplexed. My children have that word in their vocabulary, juxtaposed, <laughs> perplexed. You know, the joys of having a professor as a mom, the poor Absolutely. Thing. Yeah. And so I teach them these really critical words very young, you know, to be able to say, I'm frustrated. I remember when my daughter was four, I'm frustrated with you right now, mommy, with hands wow. on hips. And, you know, <laughs> and, and normally we would be like, well, who do you think you are to be frustrated with me? Right. That's my inner child coming out in that moment. So, you know, using that language then gets to number three, which is identifying and being aware of your own inner child and the complications that your inner child has in resolving your children's needs emotionally. Wow. And I'm not telling you to shut that off. I'm just asking you to go and do some of that work. You can do some of that work on your own. You know, if you're not a mental health fan, um, I get it. But there's there's so much out there today that can really help you um, on that path. So those are those are probably huge. And, and probably one that people take for granted emotionally is recognize that emotions run a, a gamut of personality too. And so if you have a really high energy boy, for example, who really needs a lot of outlets emotionally, you know, some people don't like physical activities or things like that. But some kids need it, whether it's to go out and kick the soccer ball, whether it's to take a pillow and scream into the pillow, um, whether it's to write a letter. A lot of my kids, like they like to write me letters. Mommy, you made me yeah. mad when you were on the phone with a client. I couldn't ask you this question. So they do these little check boxes. They ask me in a paper um, <laughs> how I feel and what I should have done. You know, they could journal, they could color. There's a lot of these other outlets that we just have to become aware. It's a lot to be a human being, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Why would it be any different for our kids? Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. And especially if you don't have that frontal lobe developed yet, you know, you don't have that regulation that, that, you know, reasoning that we have as, as that we get in later life. I mean, yeah, that's tough. That's hard. Yeah. And add hormones to it at certain dips in life too. Oh, and now not only do you have that and growing pains, right? Um, our kids are physically changing. I have a daughter who is so tall. Oh my God. And she's just in chronic pain. And so I remember that. I remember being in that moment and my mom did not have the emotional reaction I wanted, but for me, it's a reassurance that everything's okay. Physically, you're just going through a shift. Here's what happens to you. Um, But I can see that you're a little anxious about that. And I was anxious too. And it's okay. You'll be okay. That's so huge. I mean, what that small conversation with her changed her life trajectory. Yeah. Yeah, she won't have panic attacks. attacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's not going to be the panic attack, you know, profound generalized anxiety disorder. She's just going to have your your standard, you know, anxiety that comes with circumstance, which is pretty normal. Wow. This is such important work. I feel like you are, you know, by doing and researching this stuff and getting into this, I mean, you are absolutely changing generations to come 
with this research. I'm not doing it alone. There's many, you know, I've got many pioneers out there. I owe a lot of my career to um, Dr. Rosemary Sutton, who is my dissertation chair and, and the pioneer actually of the emotion revolution is what we call it. She was one of the first researchers um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, who actually went out. She studied particularly teachers' emotions, um, but really laid down the framework that we need to talk about emotions and we're not going to be quiet about it. And we're going to do some work because we know that people are burning out. People are exhausted. People are losing relationships and connections with other human beings because of the very landscape that emotions were so taboo. And we're going to talk about it. And so now, 18 years later, 17 years later, there's a fleet of us doing this research and presenting it. And I'm struggling because as an academic and a spiritualist, I still want to find the intersection to get it to the masses, to not just write it for journals. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I struggle in that to still be academic because I prefer writing to the masses so much now um, and, and trying to get that out there. But I think everybody needs this information for sure. Absolutely. And even like, even if she did start it in the nineties, like I feel like it's even more needed now because of technology. I mean, we are so isolated and if we don't ever really, you know, connect, I mean, we lose, we lose ourselves, you know, we lose any sense of purpose in life and direction. And it's like, you know, what is this all about? You know, I don't feel that connection that we had, you know, when we were all in tribes, you know, so. And we're not, this is one thing I tell people who fight the technological revolution that I agree with you. I feel better when I'm around human people, but, but, you know, I'm a Gen X, right? I mean, that was a norm for me growing up. I didn't have cable till I was in high school and things of that nature, but we're not going to be able to take that away from our kids. And technology is going to become a really huge part of their lives. So even more so that we need to talk about healthy emotional expression and regulation and online and with technology technology and what is fantasy what is reality what is what's appropriate connection with other people and um, so that they don't get lured into things that are not healthy but also you can make really successful tribe connections with people virtually and sometimes those can be saviors to people um, Mm -hmm. who lack family and blood connections they can find people out there who speak their language I know with my son being um, a vegan animal liberation person, even at such a young age, he has a tribe of people out there who support and believe in him. And the ridicule he might get from other friends Mm -hmm. is buffered by the virtual connections he has with his friends in Madrid and his friends in New Zealand and things like that. So, but we've got to have those emotional conversations about how to do that. We can't just assume they're going to know how to do that. That can get scary. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so what would you say to people listening to this or, you know, people listening to this who know people who would say, you know, boys can't be emotional because that's weakness. You know, I had, I, my responsibility is to raise my son to be strong so he can survive in this crazy world. And, you know, that means shutting down emotion and being a certain way. What would you say to them? Well, I think that's where we have to remember that there's a term out there that we call grit, right? We all want our kids to be um, capable and competent and gritty. We do. We, it's just a right new word for resilience. And grit really became really popular right in the last few years after Duckworth's, you know, really famous book. But I think significantly, all boys and girls should be, should be taught to be strong and to be resilient and how to brush ourselves off after a loss or a rejection, that there is no such thing as failure. There's only process and journey. I mean, these are not sole gender conversations. But for the male psyche, though, sometimes... It's, it, you have to impress it a little bit more, a little bit heavier, right? And, and so I think that that would be really critical that we start to use new words in our language. How many times, right? We were guilty of it as Gen X people where we use the word retard back in the mm-hmm. 80s. It was such a normal word. And then when, you know, the special ed movement and all those things moved out there, to say that word today is vile, right? It's, it's just not acceptable. The word gay was used in such a really inappropriate fashion for so long. We don't tolerate that today. So when people say you're acting like a boy or to man up, why do we just turn a blind eye to it? Why do we just, oh, he's just a boy. Yeah. That's unacceptable to me. Just like those other words you, you wouldn't use today, nor should you, that we've got to get ourselves out of that that space that we, the vocabulary we use, because, right, because how we talk is how we become. Mm-hmm. And what we say to our children is the reality that they will accept as validating, and they will then absorb that. So. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And then we kind of touched on this earlier, but, you know, our relationships with ourselves first, how does that filter out in, in, into our actual ability to help our kids be responsibly emotional and healthily emotional? I mean, how does that go? Oh, it's huge. I'll answer it in two parts. I will say one, the self-love for children to, to love themselves, right, is so critical. And I have this one example where I stopped saying, I'm proud of you. And people are, why would you stop saying that? <laughs> why? That's, that's a good thing. No, it's not because it's needing external validation from me to say you're good enough. I want my child to feel their own pride, their own joy, their own happiness first. So emotionally, I want that primary function to come from them. And then I'll say, I'm proud of you. So I'll often preface with a question at the end of a soccer game. My son's lost every soccer game this year, but he <laughs> pretty much voted Mr. Congeniality on the team. Goes on with a smile, comes off with a smile. Wow. An incredible little kid, right? Yeah. And he came off the field. I mean, it was like a 9-0 loss, right? But he's, you know played with his heart and his soul. And I said, how do you feel? He goes, I, I feel all right. All right. And I said, are you proud of yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I am. I'm proud of myself. I said, you should be. And I'm really proud mm -hmm. of you too. And so that thing where we just have this really old traditional language from way back when that doesn't work for us anymore. And we need to think about child first, parent second in our emotional exchange. And if we can do that, that gets to the second part, like you're asking about what do we do about us? Identify then, child first, gets us to stop our inner child just a little bit. And mm -hmm. says, I'll deal with you in a little bit. Hold on. Um, you know, I have got to actually be present for my own child's emotional reaction and need right now. And then go back in and recognize what was triggered for you. And why was it triggered? Um, how did that make you feel and why? And what is a good lesson that you learn out of that that then helps trickle down to your kid? Wow, I love that. I love that. It's just like taking that little moment of time saying, I'm not going to have this you know, gut reaction to this. I'm going to put his needs first. And, it, and that's a very, you know, a very normal thing to do in today's world. Like parents are, like you said, rock stars. They're doing everything they can. They have, they're working longer hours, but they're also more involved with their kids' school, like more so than ever before. And so I think that's a really smart way to reframe it for them listening. It's like, okay, you know, this is actually, I'm going to put him first and this is going to make him a better person because of it. You know, I'm going to stop my my trauma that wants to come up and, and be heard and I'm going to yeah. deal with his first. Oh, I love it. I love that. Yeah. And I'm actually creating a series of workbooks right now for parents, um, you know, and I've broken it up into three levels so that, you know, those working with toddlers and primary age kids, those working with tweens, you know, kind of um, early teen years, and then those working with high school and young adult age and what some of these varying differences might look like, how to communicate emotionally, how to help children, especially if they're later, you know, if they're older and they have to go back and learn emotional mm -hmm. expression, it's going to look different to try to help an 18 year old than it would an eight year old. Right. And so I've got some of these interactive exercises, things like that, that I'm currently working which were actually inspired by a client of mine who I was helping through her own traumas. And she said, I need something like this to work with my daughter. And I was mm -hmm. like, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> so when it's almost done. No, I'm asking. Yeah, not yet. I was going to say, now that I'm off for the summer for my academic job, writing, writing, writing is my thing. So mm -hmm. I would say expect it by late summer, early fall, I'm hoping to release and have it out there on Amazon and things like that for sale. So, That's so but I definitely do it in my coaching. So if anybody's interested, they can reach out to me um, and I can still provide some of that in coaching too. Absolutely. So, um, you know, just to round out the interview, what are the biggest takeaways, you know, for parents listening or people who aren't parents yet, but just to have it plant the seed in their minds, like what is the best way, what can they do to raise emotionally healthy children? Yeah, I think again, first and foremost is honoring that emotional landscape of yourself and your kids and recognizing that they are two separate worlds, but they intersect. And when they intersect, that's where our responsibility really comes in, that if we have wounds, if, which we all do, we all are wounded in some way, whether we were bullied, whether it was abuse, whether it was lack of self-love, you know, whatever was your wound, you have it. And being able to identify that primarily before it goes and becomes the reality of your child. They already have their own needs, their own reality, 
how can we ask them to take on ours that wasn't resolved when we were a kid? And so to me, that's what I'm most passionate about. And that was my work was I had a lot of stuff I had to fix. I had a lot of trauma, a lot of things that I faced as a kid that I knew I couldn't have my child growing up with panic attacks and anxiety like I experienced. I just couldn't. Mm -hmm. But I also learned there's some things I can't control. So I think another takeaway is not only recognizing and honoring that internal world, but recognizing that your child may be significantly different from you emotionally. And it's okay. It's okay. It's going to trigger something, right? I have an introverted, highly sensitive daughter. I have a profoundly extroverted, highly sensitive son. Um, I was introverted as a kid, learned how to become an extrovert out of necessity, but still find myself being more of an ambivert, moving that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and the not really, I guess I lost touch with the introverted world and need. And so I started to see her behaviors as maybe not normal you know, and something was going to happen to her. And I became, you know, over um, explanatory and making her feel doubts in her own spirit and her own, her own creativity and beauty of being an introverted who wanted to go to her room and read a book. And I'm over here like, oh my God, what's she going to grow up and how's she going to have relationships and how's she going to talk? And it's like, she's perfectly imperfect. She's mm-hmm. just perfectly imperfect. So she has her space now. She does her thing. She communicates with me. And I honor that. And I respect the, beaut- the beauty in that, even though it's different from me. It's okay. I love that. I yeah. love that. And that's so empowering for parents who are stressing out. And they're like, you know, am I doing a good job? I don't know. This isn't, this isn't like me. This is different. You know, something must be wrong. Like, it's okay. You know, yeah. as long as they're healthy and they're communicating with you, from what I'm getting is, that's okay. That's good. That's a good yeah. thing. Yeah, you may not agree with it, but it's just not your purpose to agree with it, right? It's to validate the reality that that's what your child is feeling. And everybody has their right to their emotions. Their reactions have societal expectations, but their emotions and their feelings, right, are theirs. That's sacred. It is. Yeah. And then there's a whole different world about how to help siblings learn how to work together. And that's a whole different thing. We'll have that another talk, another time, but (laughs) that's not as seamless as the parent child, but it, it, it effervescence out of the fact that if as a parent and a child, you're working together and your other child is seeing that and witnessing and being able to model those behaviors, it becomes a little easier, but there is an interesting dynamic between siblings. So especially if there are different genders. Well, we definitely need to revisit this (laughs) on another podcast. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but, you know, to round out the interview, I, I always ask this question to all of my guests, and it's so interesting, the different responses that I get. So I'm really curious to see what you're going to say. Um, but what's something that you've learned in life that you wish someone would have told you earlier on? Oh, wow. Um, and I know this is because I've heard some of your other podcasts and I love some of your responses where they're like, I love the journey. I love the process. I wouldn't change anything. I change everything. I'm the, right, right, right. the paradox. I would change it all. I would have loved my mother to have just embraced me and told me how much she loved me, you know, mm-hmm. like just had been able to face her demons and just like cried with me at moments and that's what I do with my my children now I'm like oh I start crying when they're sad and I just hug them and they don't want to be hugged too bad I need this right now and so I would have loved for for somebody to say those words to me that that was that you're okay because I've always been really intelligent highly sensitive I never felt I fit in I was ridiculed I was bullied until I met a really great group of people who got me right in a really great school. But I would have loved that to have been different from mm. my mom. I think that would have reduced a lot of the anxiety and then the panic and the need of not understanding why I was emotionally unique. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it's awful. I mean, that breaks my heart just to hear that, but it's like, it's almost like that at life experience led you. I mean, it did, it led you to this work and you're yeah. helping so many people through your coaching practice and, you know, uh, you know, as a professor and, you know, with your radio show. So it's, it's awful, but it's also like you're turning it into the best thing possible. And that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm certainly trying. So if people want to check you out, work with you, you know, have, have you speak, um, how can they get in touch with you? 
Absolutely. Well, my primary website is transcendentheart.com. Um, there's a page there called Your Story that you can go ahead and, and sign up. Tell me your story. Come to me. We'll do an individual consultation free of charge um, and can talk about what your needs are and if we're a good fit coaching. Wives, as far as speaking, you can reach me at Renee at transcendentheart.com. And um, I definitely do all sorts of types of workshops and um, different speaking engagements, events in school and also corporate America um, as well. And then also on Instagram is my big thing. I love Instagram, don't you? It's like, I just love that community. I'm so not on Facebook anymore, but I am Dr. Renee. So that's two R's, Dr. Renee, one life, number one life um, on Instagram that you can go ahead and find me there and follow me. And uh, we're, we're doing great work. I do lives pretty frequently on there and interact with a lot of individuals, um, provide a lot of free coaching is what it feels like, right? And I also have a YouTube channel and just uh, look me up at Dr. Renee Moudre. Love it. And all of that, of course, will be in the show notes if you're driving and you don't want to crash and writing right. it down. <laughs> yeah, and, and, oh, and my radio show. I almost forgot about that. Um, oh, you can go yeah. yeah, the Inner Revolution show, which is every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern time, 5 p.m. Pacific time. It's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Inner Revolution. And um, I'm actually going to be starting a new radio show with one of our mutual friends, Ryan Keyes. Yes. And, and I'm so uh, excited for this to come out. Yeah, we can't can release the name decide? yet. Oh, I was just going to say, you haven't decided yet. Not yet. Well, we kind of have, but we're just kind of, you know, working through a few kinks. So I want to give him the honor of us doing that together. But I'm really excited where we're going to be talking about everything related to love, sexuality, relationships. And I'm bringing in that flavor of self-love and inner child love and how it impacts all those intimate kind of aspects of relationships too. So it's going to be a good time. Really good. It's everything. It's everything. I mean, I will 100% be listening in because that is something that I... I definitely want to work on and improve in my own life. With well, we're going to want you on the show though. So know that. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't say that. that. I'm thoroughly involved. <laughs> good. Good. Yeah. We definitely want you on the show. Oh man. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dr. Renee. Like this was amazing. I learned so much. I mean, anyone listening would get so much out of this and, and the end all goal of all of this is to make our kids healthy and happy and amazing adults. Like that's what we all want. Every parent wants that. And you are absolutely helping create that. So thank thank you. you. Good human beings. That's all we want in the world is just really caring, compassionate, kind human beings. That's all we need. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It means the world to me. Again, thank you to our sponsors, Organifi, you know, putting superfoods into your diet does not have to be rocket science. Health does not have to be hard. So check them out at OrganifiShop.com and use the code LizC15 for 15% off your purchase. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Sunday Scaries. These are the CBD gummies. If you're looking for something to take the edge off, help with anxiety and stress, you know, relieve pain, get you more grounded and centered, these are amazing tools to help you do that. And they're not going to cause any ill effects. You're not going to feel high or out of sorts. Check them out at 4FORSundayscaries.com and use the code UNSTRESS for 10% off your purchase. Also, again, if you're on iTunes and you're listening to this, I would so appreciate a five-star review from you. It's helped so much with the ratings and getting the message out to more people about the show and bringing more awareness to self-love, acceptance, health, nutrition, all of these things that create a beautiful life for all of us. So again, thank you so much for spending your time with me and I'll see you next time.